Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for anyone in the Australian financial planning ecosystem with a focus on life risk insurance. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I'm a life risk insurance specialist, and you're listening to My Risk Advisor. Hey there, today with me, I've got Grant Miller and we're going to have a good chat about needs analysis. So, how we think about the right amount of cover for our clients. So, Grant is a financial planner and money coach at Inspired Financial Planners. And before we get started, we can't do this podcast without the help of Zurich and OnePath. So, I want to start by saying thank you. Zurich and OnePath are your partners in life and also proud supporters of the My Risk Advisor podcast. G'day, Grant. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. How are you going? Yeah, pretty well. Thanks, buddy. How are you? Awesome. Well, just give us a rundown of your business. Um, who, do you, who are the clients that you work with? Um, what's your business focused on? Yeah, cool. So at the moment, um, I'm, I'm moving as much as I can into focusing purely on healthcare professionals aged 25 to 45, um, predominantly allied health professionals. I target PAYG as opposed to self-employed because they're a hell of a lot easier to work with. Um, and just fits my style, I guess. Yep. Um, I don't want to have to deal with all the complexities of business and all that sort of stuff. So although I do have a few clients that are in that space, yeah, it's just age 25 to 45, singles, young families kind of thing. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the needs analysis um, a lot and in depth today. Um, but one question I've got for you, I, I like how you've niched into picking your space uh, and that's really good. But what happens if you've got an existing client who does become self-employed? Do you then partner with another advisor who really loves that stuff and geeks out over that or do you keep working with those clients? Uh, it depends on the level of complexity. So, if it's a really simple case, then I'll continue to work on it. If they're going into more of a complex business structure or something, then I'll just be like, hey, this person does you know, a lot more work with clients that are more suited to you. They'll take care of the insurance side, give you the advice on that and we'll continue doing whatever else. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And so, with regards to the advice um, and the insurance advice, let's get stuck into that. How do you go about thinking about the level of cover from yeah. your, for your clients? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've got a table that I work through in the Fact Find where it's essentially just prompts around each individual Typical uh, risk that clients want to offset. So, top of the list is obviously clearing debts, clearing the mortgage kind of thing. Uh, And it's basically there to say, is this a risk that you want to pay an insurance company to hold as opposed to you holding it directly? Um, And if yes, then we've already got that data in the fact fine and we can just say, yep, you've got 550K owing. Slap that in there. That's how much you need. And, you know, kind of just going through those those typical areas, I guess, that clients might want to cover as opposed to saying, hey, what do you reckon of half a mil or a mil or something, which sometimes you see and I'm like, how did you even come up with this figure? It's just so random. Yeah. So, what are those things? Like, we're, we're here to geek out. Yeah, all right. Um, so, what are those specific things that you feel like, you know, do you want to hold that risk or do you want to pass that on? Yeah. So, uh, the list includes clearing the home loan, clearing other loans, final expenses, uh, terminal illness, 
an inheritance, um, medical costs, rehabilitation, replacing income, children and education, other income, and other capital. Cool. So that's line by line what I've got in there. And then I've got you know, less any existing assets to sell, less any insurances, less any insurance you want to, uh, sorry, less any super or insurances you want to retain. Yeah. Cool. So, all right, that's good. And they're the kind of things that you think about, you know, with regards to the level of cover. If we cover those things or at least give the client the option to say yes or no to those things, then that's the number we'll end up on. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Let's take a step back and talk about your process because that's one thing that I always find interesting. Um, and we, I mean, in our business, we're very specific and I'll, I'll talk about the way we think about it. But like, what's your overall client experience and what's the process look like? So, You mean like the client journey from yeah, exactly. first so, interaction to SOA type thing? Yeah, I guess the point of fleshing out your client experience is more like when are you having this conversation with the client? Do you want to cover this or not? Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so this doesn't actually happen until maybe meeting two or three. Um, so first things first is have a chat over the phone, kind of vet them out, see if we're a good fit. Yep. Set up a first meeting and prior to the first meeting, I get them to complete an online questionnaire that uh, is fairly high level. And so that goes through, because I'm a holistic advisor, it goes through all the different categories of what might be relevant to them. Yep. We then catch up, discuss that, run through the process and um, get comfortable and make sure we're ready to take the next step, explain you know the process of working out fees and things, which I don't quote in the first meeting. Um, I'll either complete some of or have them separately complete some of the key data that I need in a fact find after that first meeting. And then either we'll have a second meeting where we'll go through the rest of it together, including budgets and all this sort of stuff, um, or I'll get them to do it on their own. So I record videos, instructions on how to do stuff so they can not be left hanging. Uh, and so that's where I say meeting two or three because if meeting two is completing the fact find and the budget, the third meeting is where we go through a high-level strategy outline where we outline where they're currently at, what the gaps are, and what action needs to be taken. And then at the end of that is the quote around here's what it's going to cost up front, ongoing, and here are the services essentially that are going to be involved with that. So maybe to, to take a step back, where we would go through the needs analysis usually isn't even in that um, that meeting where we go through the fact find because it is a f- somewhat dumbed down one because I want to make yeah. it as easy as possible to go through the process to get them committed as opposed to getting absolutely everything and then trying to get commitment. So we may go through at that point where we're going through fact find, but usually it's a meeting after that strategy outline where we kind of nut out the other things which – Usually, the two things left hanging are the needs analysis and the investment risk profile questionnaire. Yeah. So, okay, so this so, doesn't happen until yeah, well after the fact. Yeah, let me just. So I'm pretty slow. So let me just reiterate what you said, <laughs> yeah, cool. just so I can get it in my head. So you do a, a phone call, short phone call, just a quick vetting. Hey, do you need advice or not? No. Then you jump into it. The first meeting. How long would that meeting be? Uh, no more than 45 minutes. So it's usually it's really just, 30 to 45. Yeah, and it's really just a, hey, this is kind of roughly what we do in the, and the things that you indicated in that online form, that's, we can help you with that or we, you know, maybe we're not a good fit yep. um, after that meeting. And then the next steps is a fact-finding meeting. 
Yeah. If, or if they, they don't do it that on. online. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, quick quick aside, why don't you have a, why don't you make a call? Either you do it online or you do it with us. Why do you give the clients the option? As in to do it on their own or to do it with me? Yeah, yeah, just make a call and say we do it this way. You either do it on your own, like as in for everyone does it on their own and here's right. a whole bunch of videos to help you do it or everyone does it with us. Why don't you make a choice there? Yeah, well, everyone's different. Everyone's got different preferences. So if you've got someone that will do it on their own, then hallelujah, that saves me a bunch of time doing that. Yeah. But we all know that clients aren't necessarily reliable with being able to complete everything on their own. And some like to have their uh, hand held and all that sort of stuff. So at least giving them the two options. If they're happy to do it and they will do it on their own, it saves me time saves them having to organize a set time into their schedule to meet with me. Um, But if they need that hand-holding, then I'm more than happy to go through it. Got it. And you charge for that second meeting. So let's let's call it a fact-finding meeting. Are you charging for that if they don't do it on their own? Yeah, no, I don't charge anything until we get the commitment after that strategy outline. So I used to – I've gone through a few different processes and this is – Possibly, As every advisor has. <laughs> possibly working with a couple of different business coaches and stuff too where it's like, all right, first meeting is either consultation fee or you charge after that first meeting. Um, initially, I didn't charge anything all the way through to SOA, which yeah. I, it, yeah, I won't go you there. Regret? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a learning experience. And then um, next was, yeah, getting a commitment fee, I guess you could call it, after the first meeting. Um which is to mitigate the risk of having multiple meetings with someone that ends up going nowhere. Yeah. Um, But this is where I think having a really clear vetting process, getting them involved, getting them invested and asking the right questions up front to get them invested has made me reach a point where I'm now comfortable going through a few meetings before I do get that commitment. And after the strategy outline, it's like you commit or you go. If they're ready to commit, I take 50% of the fee up front. And then 50% when we do deliver the SOA. Yeah, cool. So, you do a fact-find meeting, you know, optional, whether a client wants it or not. And then you do a strategy meeting. Yeah. And are you saying you'll go through that needs analysis question, you know, is this important for you to ensure the, for, or to pass that, that risk onwards? Is that when you'll have that discussion? That's after the strategy outline. So the the two final things are the needs analysis and the investment risk profile questionnaire. And you'll do that after the strategy outline. Yeah, because so, the strategy so is this in meeting 17 or meeting 18? <laughs> Which one are we what, what one are we up to now? Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, it is either meeting 3 or 4. Uh, but the reason why again I don't is the needs analysis takes time. Mm. And that shouldn't coincide with those other really important meetings where you're getting commitment and getting that initial process started, in my opinion. Yeah, that's uh, right. Okay, so your strategy meeting is really, here's a high-level understanding very, of what we're going to do. Very high-level. Insurance, super, blah, 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 blah. And this is the cost. Do you want to go ahead or not? Yeah. And, it, and then if they say, yep, keen to go ahead, then you'll touch on, okay, well, you know, what does the investment looks like based on your risk profile? What does the insurance look like based on based on your overall needs? Yeah, so it's the yeah the the strategy outline isn't going to say you're a high risk investor who requires insurance to cover all of this sort of stuff. We've kind of had discussions along the way as well, but we're not quantifying that yet. 
Yes. It's, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, it's, um, yeah, it, it's not getting those specific figures at that point. It's identifying you need risk cover, you need advice on this. It's not specific around that because we're not giving advice yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, in that needs analysis discussion and, you, and you're doing that via a meeting, the needs analysis and the risk profile, you're doing yep. that in a meeting with yep. them. So, how many of those clients really have a good sense of how much cover they want going into that meeting? Usually not a lot. And I've, I've been kind of toying with the idea because I do videos pretty much throughout the entire process. Like before the first yep. meeting will be like, hey, here's my face, here's my voice. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched any Aussie man videos. But oh, yeah. He's always yeah. like, yeah, here's me face. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where they get to start, you know, interacting with you even if you haven't yet. But yeah. I'm kind of toying with the idea of introducing the needs analysis and everything through a video, not just, you know, here's what we're going to talk about, but saying here are the specific things I want you to think about um, because it – Possibly that is one of the reasons why it takes a little bit longer is because we're kind of going through and they haven't thought too much about these things and they kind of want to have these discussions if it's a couple or the individual's like, oh, I haven't thought about that before. So it's very much prompting yeah. in the moment. So, yeah, that's, I'm glad you asked that because I can revise my process. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like for, for our process, we are completely different uh, in terms of yeah, our nice. process. I mean, our business is different. We are 100% insurance only focused. Yeah. And so, our our insurance needs analysis is really just a, a, a fancy calculator with a whole bunch of metrics. So, our metrics is... And, and you mentioned in the Facebook group that, that you record a video about your kind of um, needs analysis, which, which I'll do as well yep. um, to show, show our numbers. But really at a high level, the main things that we care about is a client's date of birth because that has an impact on you know, how much cover, how long do we need cover for, yep. um, the client's income, the client's debt, their super balance, their cash flow savings, their cover that they've got and are we going to retain or replace that that has an impact um, and then things like the if they've got existing income protection our calculator factors in that we're going to retain that income protection but it's got a benefit period of two years so then you know how do we how do we you know mix and match yep. other insurance policies we ask questions about well the the things that impact the the level of cover is do they have kids or plan to have kids um, are they uninsurable as well like from an income protection point of view because that'll have a big impact on on other covers and then what's the max benefit period they can get so if if they're capped to a five year benefit period um, because of occupation reasons then our TPD level of cover will be much higher because of because of that gap yeah. Um, and then we've also built in, thank you, APRA, for allowing me to do an extra 20 hours worth of work on this needs analysis calculator, but we built in which policy we're we recommending. Are we recommending a benefit of 70% for the life of the policy or is it going from 70 to 60%? So we've kind of factored in those new income protection policies And is that, as well. that that's based on the cash flow, the replacement no, ratio, or is that a preference that you're offering? No, that that... And, and more, more high level, the way I think about it is I want to replace someone's income till age 65. Yep. And that's kind of my base level. Now, most of that's through income protection and the rest is through disability. 
insurance. So what we thought about is with these new contracts that came out where, you know, NEOS goes 70% for the first two years and then drops down to 60% thereafter, or if you look at like MetLife who are 70% for the life of the policy. Yep. With the MetLife recommendation, we want to replace 30% of their income between now and retirement. Yep. With NEOS, we've worked out the cow to go, okay, for the first two years, we need to replace 30%. And then from two years to age 65, we need to replace 40%. Gotcha. So if we're recommending NEOS, our level of TBD will be higher yep. than if we recommended MetLife. Yeah. Um, so we've built in all these kind of basically tick boxes that that factor in how the level of cover that we think about. But our process is much more straightforward. Where I think about it as I don't think any client ever walks into my office knowing the level of cover that they want. Yep. And if they do, it's generally really really low. Yeah. It's a matter of I just want to pay off the home loan. And that's generally the, the majority of times if they, if they have an idea, it's because they want to pay off the home loan. And so we think about it as I would much rather work out, you know, tailor the level of cover to the client, but we don't give them a million options before, before we tell them how much cover we think they need. Um, so that's my philosophy is I've got a philosophy of level of cover that I think is important and it's completely tailored to every client because of, you know, those... 15 metrics that that matter yeah but the level of cover is also and and the statement of vice which is what i think about is kind of the starting point because most needs analysis at the end of the day it's almost irrelevant if the cover is way too expensive and and so i think about it is if we can get to the client and say this is kind of our philosophy this is the level of cover i think is important but at the end of the day, it's your policy. You'll get paid this benefit if you ever need it and you're the one paying the premiums. Do you want to make any adjustments from here? Yeah, that makes sense. And so in terms of like at a high level, what's your kind of – do you just go yay or nay to all of those metrics and then that, that punches out a number? Is that how it works for you? Uh, I, I've got like a separate calculator so I can just copy and paste it out of the Word doc or the Google doc. Um and just put it into either yeah, Google Sheet or Spreadsheet and that automatically tallies up the amount. One thing that I'm wanting to automate a bit better is when we're doing, for instance, you were saying like the TPD sum through to age 65, for instance. So do you just say, look, there's a, let's say they're on 100 grand, there's a 30 grand gap. Do you then just go, you know, let's say they're 35, do you just go 30 grand multiplied by 30 or is there a separate methodology behind saying, look, it's likely this will be invested, uh, gradually yeah. depleting the capital over time? Because um, if you just go 30 grand over 30 years, like it's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah a, lot, a lot of money. So that's something that, um, you know, like the, the licensee's got a calculator already in five year increments to say, look, on a real return of three, four, five, whatever percent. Uh, over X number of years for every 10,000 worth of cover you need. Um, here's how much that'll equate to, assuming you get a straight return, no variation yeah. on that over that period of time. So it's going to make some pretty specific assumptions, but I mean, you you can't really forecast what's going to happen anyway. That's so, it. And, 
and I mean, the needs analysis is is so tricky because it it does influence, especially if you're getting paid. Well, if you're getting paid a commission, it influences how much you get paid, yeah, and how much you recommend the client, and the, therefore the premium. So, it is really interesting thinking about that. I I always have a, an opinion within our needs analysis, and we've got you know three advisors now. We've got an ex advisor, so everyone's got an opinion and. And I welcome that on our needs analysis. We catch up every on a regular basis going, this is kind of the core of our recommendation. Outside of underwriting, which we don't control, the insurer controls that. Outside of the product selection, which is, you know, we control it, but at the end of the day, it's underwriting leads to product selection. Yep. The main thing that we control is the level of cover. So I'm always kind of hesitant to over-recommend. We try not to over-recommend. Now, yep. people could... You know, I said this the other day. If you talk to eleven, you know, ten different advisors, you'd come out with like eleven different types of strategies. That's the most appropriate. We all disagree with each other yeah, <laughs> in terms absolutely. of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, but the way I think, I'm, I'm quite cautious in making sure we try not to overinsure. But you also don't want to underinsure. And, yeah, exactly. And the right level of insurance is well, who knows? Um, yeah. We'll know. <laughs> At the time of the event, yeah, and it's it's finding a balance. Like you said before, you don't want to have a million options for them to have to go through, which you can if you want to really, really refine it. Like, mm. is this important to you? Is this important to you? You know, if this, then what kind of thing? So it's trying to find that balance of a reasonable level of cover without making it overly complex, yeah. as well. And that's the other thing that the FASI requirements tells us the, the client needs to understand what the heck we're doing. Yeah. So if we've got a really complex needs analysis, but the client walks away and go, well, I guess the advisor told me that that was appropriate or not. Yeah. If the client doesn't actually understand or can't articulate it, then that's also a concern with the needs analysis. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, to answer, sorry, just to go back and answer your question with that, um, we do factor in a rate of return on the investments. Yeah. So we assume a two and a half percent inflation increase on the level of cover. So we need 30 grand today, but next year we need 30 grand plus two and a half percent. And that compounds. But we also assume a five percent rate of return. Um so so in reality, let's say you just did that, you know, 30 times 30 gets to X, we would get to a much lower number because of that rate of return. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And, and that's kind of part of the philosophy too, isn't it? Is explaining to the client, look, it's unlikely you're just going to take this as a lump sum. And if you are, like with my needs analysis, for instance, it's that income replacement where we're starting to adjust that. It's not the total sum. Mm. So if we're saying you're going to clear the mortgage, then we're not going to reduce that assuming it's invested. You're kind of segregating that that part of it. Um, yeah, and so at your at your base, and and I'll talk about like our base philosophy. If if everyone took everything I said as the way to do it, I'll talk about our actual numbers. But like at your base, can you help me understand like with life cover? What what do you think is the appropriate not not number yeah, yeah. that that people need, but like the philosophy? What yeah, does like, that look like? Like a typical scenario of where you're like, yeah, this is the major thing you should consider. For me, yeah. it's, it's clearing debt. Um, if you're an individual, you know, there's usually not a lot much more to it if there's no financial dependence. For couples, it's determining how long until your children are no longer financial dependents and then giving yeah. them the option to say, is the spouse going to go back to work? What if they can't? You know, then do you want to just insure until the children are 
of adult age and then you can kind of go through that way. For life cover, those are probably the two biggest things for me is is clearing debt and replacing income for financial dependence. Yeah. For TPD is adding into the mix, like you said, um, replacing that other segment of income that income protection can't cover. Yeah. Um, and also giving the clients an option, and this is something that's like super grey and and stuff is saying, look, if you had to make alterations to your home or lifestyle in addition to replacing your income, assuming that you're not going to be eligible for any kind of government support or you've got to wait years for it because that's the reality, um, you know, working out a reasonable sum to say, is this going to be sufficient? And clients don't know. Um, that's right. So I, I so want to find a better way to quantify to say typical costs of making extensions, building a ramp, putting in guardrails, you know, getting special vehicles, special wheelchair, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I realistically say to clients, look, do you reckon 150 to 200 grand would help to cover those kind of expenses? And that's usually yeah. kind of where we go. But I, I yeah, should quantify it a bit better. Well, I mean, that's, that's why it's interesting because, you know, my experience is if if cost wasn't a factor, the clients would just do whatever the level of cover the, the advisor recommends. Yeah. And you could talk to two different advisors and we come to two different numbers. But the client, as long as you've got a sound philosophy and it makes sense to the client, then then they're going to take that level of cover. Now, bringing in premiums back into the mix, if it's really expensive, they're going to start to think about dialing those numbers back. Yeah. But the way we think about it is for life insurance, we, we've got a needs analysis for individuals and for couples. So, it, it slightly differs. But for us, for life insurance cover, we want to clear the debt the home loan, so we don't clear investment debt. My yep. philosophy is you could sell the house, you could keep it. It's it's kind of an investment debt. Yep. I should have clarified that's that's mine too. I've got, yeah, two separate yep. lines to say reduce or clear home loan and reduce or clear other loans. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. yeah, definitely. Yeah, so we do we do home loan debt clearing. We replace the um, deceased partner's income for 10 years minus the tax and minus the home loan repayments. So, if we're clearing the home loan, we don't need the money to pay for that home loan anymore and we're not paying tax on on a death benefit um, if they're they're financial dependent. So, we just do a 10-year income replacement. Now, you know, in my own head, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's not enough and and quite possibly couldn't be enough for some people. Um, Sometimes it's too much. Now, one thing to note, we do have a base level of $60,000 a year for if they've got kids. So, if that number, that income replacement minus tax minus mortgage is less than 60 grand, then we bump it up to 60 grand if they've got kids. So, for me and my wife, my wife's not earning an income at the moment so if she died, I wouldn't want nothing yeah. as income replacement because it's going to cost me a heck of a lot to to care for the kids. Yep. Um, and then we minus the super balance because that'll get paid out and then, yeah, minus the existing cover where we will recommend the client maintain. Yeah, that makes sense. And just noting on what you were saying before, uh, if I'm not cutting off an idea, um, is when you were talking about income replacement and stuff, this is where like a huge chunk of what I do is the budget as well. Yeah, And so, really the two things that are really dynamic, which is really helpful with reviews and really demonstrating to a client having these meaningful discussions is to say, here's your living expenses and if the mortgage is out, we can just take that line out of the budget, say, here are your living expenses, 
do you want to fully replace your income or do you want to just replace your living expenses over that period of time? But yeah, so that's that's essentially part of it too. So TPD is similar kind of thing is to, to say you have a massive surplus on your income. Most people don't, if, if we're being completely honest. Most people don't yeah. generally have a, a massive- living. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it is very much a matter of Factoring all of that in though, so taking out certain expenses to then work out, you still will have a surplus of X amount through that. And yeah, that might be overkill for me kind of going into little finer details, not overly simplistic, might be over analytical. Uh, I do that sometimes, but it is a matter of saying, look, realistically in that scenario, ex-spouse has now passed away or permanently disabled now have enough to cover those living expenses, nothing more, nothing less, or you should still have, based on this budget, assuming nothing else changes, X amount of surplus. So you have that as a buffer. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, and that review time, we can go back to it and say, all right, your debt's now reduced. We can adjust that and adjust the budget and kind of factor it all That's away. right. And, that, and that's kind of really the... the at the core of that is do we want to replace expenses or do we want to replace income? Yeah. Because ideally income's higher than expenses. But I mean, all we've all we've talked about so far is even just the life and TPD factor as That's well. That's right. Yeah. Trauma's a yeah. completely so, different beast. And the, and the way I think about it in our business is we want to replace income. Yeah. And the reason we think about income and in fact we don't we don't do a budget with our clients. We ask them how much they're saving to work out whether these premiums are affordable or not. Because every time I've done a budget in my, you know, eight years of holistic advice, no one knows what they're spending. Yeah. They've magically got a $30,000 a year surplus that they're not saving. And it's like, well, where's this money coming from? You've just underestimated your spending. Yeah. So that's why we think about, well, what are you actually saving or investing? And yeah. that's the number we we know. As then we work backwards and go, well, if your income's this, your tax is this, and your and you're saving this, well, this is your expenses. We know that to be true. Yeah, which is a a much more realistic method too because, yeah, I'll have budgets where it says you've got a $5,000 a month surplus, there's three grand in the bank. So, did you start saving two and a half weeks ago or (laughs) what's the deal? I mean, and that's that's pretty true across the board. But that's why I think about trying to replace income because I actually – the way I kind of look at it is insurance is about drawing a straight line from where you are now as you accumulate wealth. If something was to happen, you would accumulate wealth the exact same trajectory. Yep. And the only way we can do that is to replace income. Yep. Because if you're investing heaps of money, then great, you can continue to do that if this event happens. Yep. Now, if you want to save money on premiums, a way to do that is to be in a worse financial situation if something was to happen. If you want to make bank, which is not the purpose of insurance, then do what I do and get heaps of insurance over and above your your level that that is reasonable. So that's why we think about in our business, it's all about income. And so when we get people who are, you know, fire financial independence, retire early and saving like $100,000 a year and we go, well, that's great. Maybe we just hold this insurance for less time because you've you're retired and you no longer earn in, inc- in income. But I still want you to be on that trajectory if something was to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's kind of got to be that trade-off of choosing expenses rather than income. Because like you said, 
you would otherwise be accumulating wealth for your retirement because this cover, if it's supposed to last you to age 65 or 67 is usually where mm. I piece it, um, what happens after that? Like you pretty much, you've used all your capital, you own your home, that's great, but now you've gone from being able to comfortably, you know, live to now just surviving. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. yeah exactly. But yeah, it, it is a trade-off that can be discussed if premiums are excessive and they just can't afford it or that's right. it's, yeah. it's giving them and that option if it's if it's not feasible. And that's it. And that's one thing we do before the recommendation is if premiums are excessive, then we'll dial it back. Yep. Um, now, we've got a pretty generous level of premiums only because I don't want to be providing advice limiting the levels or the features or benefits of the cover because I think it's expensive. Yeah. Um, I, as long as it's within our parameters of being comfortable, we won't limit it and we'll just tell the client, hey, if, if that's too expensive, happy days. We can work with you to bring that down. Yep. So with trauma, how do you get to your level of trauma? Man, my – yeah, this has been something that's been such a headache over the years to be like what is a reasonable level of cover? Um, so honestly, I just rely on the Zurich Cost of Care white paper. As a guide, okay. I say, look, it recommends that 380K is high-level – care over the course of your lifetime factoring in that you should be receiving you know, support from government health agencies to get by on it. And I say, look, go for that. And if that's so, not feasible, then we start to work back. Just to clarify, medical cost is $380,000 that you're covering for? That's Yeah, that's what the white paper says is your out-of-pocket medical costs over a lifespan Again, that's really generic and it could be higher, it could be lower. Yeah. Um, part of that is also a discussion around, well, you know, if you're receiving care for this condition and your spouse isn't able to claim on income protection for it, for instance, um, you have out-of-pocket medical expenses plus you have a spouse that should be taking time off work to care for you, care for the kids and all that sort of stuff. So there's that as a potential additional amount to be added on. I don't recommend clearing home loans and stuff like that with trauma cover um, because if you're still off work over an extended period of time, then you're either receiving IP, highly likely receiving IP, or if it's been debilitating, now paid out under TPD or yeah, yeah. worst case scenario, life cover is now paid out. So yeah, uh, those are generally the two things that I look at with trauma is what's the potential cost of of care, who knows? But yep. here's a white paper that's kind of rounded out an estimate on it. Let's work off that because otherwise we're just being completely speculative around what's reasonable. And yeah, yeah. do you want to also replace spouse's income or whatever over that? Yeah, bit? I mean, I would, yeah, I've got to read that cost of care again because I, when I read it, I read specific events that they touched on. Yeah. And some of those specific events were like, you know, the average cost of this is $35,000. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I'm really stretching my memory, but I, I think bowel cancer was quite low and like, and it's statistically really highly likely my sister-in-law, don't know if I should say this on a podcast, but my sister-in-law had it and she's what, 35. Um, yeah. And so, ever since then, every time I go into a doctor's office and I see the poster, one in eight people have bowel cancer, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, fortunately, she's the one in eight and maybe that means yeah. I won't get it. <laughs> um, but, um, 
you know, I look at the cost of care and there were things that were 150 grand um, if you had it, some that were 35 grand. Yep. And so, I'll have to read it again to get that $380,000. But yeah, the th- way There was I a summary, it, summary at the end of it which broke it down. Didn't read it well enough. Because, <laughs> because it, does, it goes for ages about individual conditions. Mm. And yeah, you're just kind of, yeah, it's bedtime reading really to go through each one and try and memorize what is this particular condition? Mm. What's the statistical likelihood you'll suffer that condition? That's um, it. I don't think, I don't know if the original white paper had it, but I have had a BDM send me like a presentation version of it. Yeah. And that presentation had a separate sh- uh, slide which just went down and broke it into yeah low medium high yeah of- cool yeah I mean I, I mean it's it's always hard because I love insurers and Zurich Costa Care reports are great um, but it's always difficult to take a level of cover from an insurer because they're incentivized <laughs> for high levels of cover because it's more expensive so what I do is I just do a flat $100,000 and I, in the meeting, I make sure I tell clients that this could be well underinsured. Um, if you have a battle with cancer and you're out of work for many, many years, this may not be enough. But if you have a heart attack, get rushed to hospital, you're out of work for a few weeks, you know, part-time for a month or two and then you're back full-time and, and fully recovered, you're going to have more money than it's ever going to cost you. Yep. Um, and so we make sure we articulate to the clients that this is and indeterminate, we don't know what you're going to claim on. And so you can go really high and, and make sure we top, get the most expensive potential event. Or you can bring it down and go, well, you know, let's just pick $100,000, which we do. Yep. Um, on top of that, the way we think about it is we want to replace the person who has the trauma. Um, we want to replace 30% of their income. And so the difference between their current income and their income protection payments for yep. 12 months. So that's just for one year. Now, if they can't get income protection, so, you know, a stay-at-home parent or um, they're uninsurable for occupation reasons, but they can get trauma, then we want to replace two years worth of their full after-tax income. Yeah. Um, and then if they've got a partner, we want to replace their partner's after-tax income for 12 months. Yeah. Is so, that, that kind of like I was saying before, you want your partner to be yeah, there if, exactly. if you need care, especially with kids, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even so, without, you still want your partner to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just yeah, it's just a pain in the neck. Like, yeah, as I said, my sister-in-law had cancer, and my brother—they just had their third kid. It was like he was just in the hospital all the time, um, yeah. and and so yeah, it's. I mean, it's full on time. So that's the way we think about it. Is if you're sick, we want to give you a hundred thousand dollars for medical expenses. Now, it could be well short of what's needed. We also want to replace 30% of your income because, you know, potentially you're on income protection as well. And for your partner to take 12 months off work or have the ability to take 12 months off work. Um, So that's how we get to it. It's a pretty straight down line figure. That's the number we recommend to clients. Um, Keeps it simple. We don't don't do debt either. Um, I kind of actually really disagree with replacing (laughs) debt on trauma because it's so expensive. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've heard from another advisor that assisted with a claim of like nine hundred and something thousand. That's wild. And it was like you're glad that you had the cover when you claimed on it, but yeah, it's almost an inheritance mm. uh, of sorts. Yeah. It's and I mean, you know, if the client wants it and the advisor has that philosophy, I don't 
I mean, I said I disagree with it, which I kind of do. But <laughs> at the same time, if you communicate to clients and they are fully aware, then it's more than appropriate. As I said, I've got heaps more trauma cover than I recommend my clients because I want to pay that. I, I know statistically it's high that me or Kate will have an event. I want to have money in the bank. Yep. No questions asked. Um, but we don't recommend that to clients. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that trade-off of, of affordability, what's reasonable and yeah, justifiable. And you know, if the client wants it, then you can't say, no, you must not. Uh, it's like, well, That's here's, here's yeah. what we've got to consider if you want to go down that route. Yeah, and that's why, like, for me and my philosophy, because, I mean, we're 100% insurance only, so it it's not wrapped up into other conversations around investing in it, and it's very much a spend an hour geeking out over these things plus a whole bunch of videos before the meeting to geek out only on insurance. Yeah. We'll talk about your level of cover and ask what they think about the level of cover. Most people have got no idea. We talk about underwriting and what we expect the terms to be, and we talk about cost, and if... They want to bring the cost down. Okay, we'll have a chat about you know what are some ways of doing it. If they want more cover than what we think, happy days. I personally have heaps more than I would recommend myself. So we're happy to kind of help people increase the level of cover. But I kind of view it as a starting point. This is more a conversation piece and then let's talk about it from there. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And income protection, any interesting philosophies around income protection? Not really. I mean, you've kind of just got to tailor Really, the main one, in my opinion, is the waiting period. You know? Yep. Can they get by over an extended period of time and do they want to, to have to? I have some clients that are comfortably able to get by you know, with a 90-day waiting period, but they want a 30-day waiting period because they're like, if I claim, chances are I'm probably going to be back within those 90 days, so I'd rather be able to get something out of it if I needed yeah. to make a claim. So that's probably the main one. Um, especially with the clients in my age range, is I I don't necessarily look for a five year benefit period. I'm going through to age sixty five if I can. Yeah. yeah. Um, with IP, I guess one of the considerations is you know, looking at depending on occupation class, is there a requirement to be totally disabled during the waiting period, for instance, and you know, having that as a consideration to say, yeah, uh, you know, this one doesn't have a requirement for you to be totally disabled. This one requires you to be disabled for you know, 14 days out of the waiting, you know, 40 consecutive days out of your waiting period. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not entitled to claim. So those kind of underlying term things, I guess. Uh, yeah, we, we do a lot of age 65. I'm, I had a chat to Tao, state manager, the other day and talking about oh, lots of people looking at their short-term contracts, their five-year contracts. And yep. I just said for our clients, our average age is like low 30s. So a five-year term is just nowhere near enough. Yep. Um, and because they're so young, young, the difference between a five-year term and an age 65-year t- term isn't that much. Yep. Um, so there's other areas I would prefer my clients to shave on cost than to than to limit that benefit period. Yep. And the reason I think about that is because lots of insurers are coming out and saying, well, you know, people statistically aren't getting paid after that um, two-year period, um, which makes a lot of sense. But the major- 80% of their cost to their business is those long-term claims. Yep. So I think about it from my clients and go, yes, very few are going to be on for that long, but the majority of money that will ever get paid out to my clients is 
the very, very, very unlucky ones that need it for that long. Yeah. Um, and that's that's and what they're going to be pushing too is with the new product line is just have those short benefit periods, make up the rest in, in CPD, which yeah. makes sense on paper, but in reality can be completely different if, like you said, you've got someone in that scenario. I've got a few clients and I don't have like a, a huge business or a huge client base or anything. And I've already got a few clients. I mean, you're clients only turning over three mil a year. Like, so it's not that 30, big. 30, you missed an extra zero. <laughs> oh, sorry. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got less than 50 active clients at the moment. Uh, and I have three that are on long-term claims mm. um, or projected to be on long-term claims. One already yeah. is and two are projected to be. For me, that's a huge statistical observation to say, you know, how screwed would they be financially yeah. if they didn't have these long-term benefits? And one of them, the one that's been on claim for, uh, it'll be like 11 years this year, um, she's able to work part-time but not full-time. So, it's kind of bridging that gap of lost yeah. income. And TBD is not eligible. No, exactly. So, it's like you're either just going to be shot now because you either sometimes can't work at all or you're only able to work part-time. Yeah. And, and I guess my concern with that philosophy with a five-year benefit is like I'm in our needs analysis, we look at the value of someone's income, assuming no promotions, just a CPI increase. Yeah. And for a third, well, me, I put my date of birth. So, how old am I? 35, 36? Don't remember. Um, <laughs> and if, if I was on 150 grand a year, that's like just less than $7 million between now and retirement, assuming retirement age is 65 as well. Like, I can't make up that gap with TBD. Like, my calc says if I've got a five-year benefit period, I need four mil of TBD to, to cover that gap. Yep. Insurers aren't giving me four mil of TBD cover, like they're, they're not accepting that. So that's where for me and my clients, it's difficult to make up that gap because of that, that long-term benefit is, is needed for my clients. If I was predominantly working in the you know, 50 to 55-year-old space, it probably makes a lot more sense because, you know, do we need that cover for an extra, you know, 10 or you know, five or 10 years? Yep. Maybe we can make up that gap with TBD or, you know, there's investable assets that we can use. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that strategy is very difficult for, for the younger clients that, that I talk to. Yep, 100%. I would say that's probably the majority of the major considerations. I mean, I, I, I'm now biased towards the, the long-term ONOC IP definition yeah. um, where I've previously tried to remain as agnostic as I can across the board uh, and now I'm, I'm very highly favouring that because one, it could potentially benefit a client and two, it's risk mitigation from me from a commercial perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To say I recommended this one because you know, long-term it's got significantly more favourable conditions. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that those those new contracts, we don't think of it that way necessarily, that that we're just writing MetLife because because of our knock for the for the term. Yeah. We think about it as uh what is the premium, how much higher does that premium need to be for to to knock it out of of place? So yeah. if it's fifteen percent more expensive, and I know that, you know, if we just if we just take a round figure of ten percent of um claims go for longer than two years yep. 
And I go, and and very few people actually claim on this cover because it's not claimed that much. I go, mm, for a 15% premium increase, is ONOC as important to me? Yep. Um, statistically, in my head, I go, well, no, it's not that important because the likelihood of someone claiming is low, likelihood of someone claiming for a long period of time is also really low. Yep. So we don't we don't go for that um, that ONOC for yep. the for the life of the policy. Makes which sense. yeah. And that's so, yeah, I, I mean I didn't stipulate that as a condition of assessment as well, which completely makes sense. I've had one case recently where it was probably thirty or forty percent more expensive to go down that route. Yeah. And I was like that's not feasible. Like we're not going to. Here's here's why I think it's a superior policy, mm. but in terms of cost, uh, the only major difference between that and say this one is that single term. Yeah, there's yeah. a few other underlying things potentially, but broadly speaking, that's going to be your major major difference. And so, therefore, I think this one is more suitable because you're not forking out a stupid amount. Not to mention the fifteen percent discount in year one. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing too. So. It's yeah, it's interesting, and and that's why I think I don't think advice is so subjective. We can kind of pick whatever numbers we want and go ahead with it now. And that's why I think that you know, just kind of wrap up this conversation around needs analysis. I think you've just got to have a really good philosophy that you have a conviction over that is for the service of your clients. If and there's very few people out there. If your needs analysis calculator is one line that says the maximum amount the client can afford in <laughs> in premiums, <laughs> then that's probably not a good philosophy. And maybe you should, you know, hang up, hang up the boots and and you know be done with giving insurance advice. Um, but you know, whether you or I come to the same numbers, we're almost certainly not going to come to the same numbers. But if we've got a good philosophy around it and we communicate to that client and the clients agree and sign off on it, then there's almost, you know, without, there are extremes, but there's almost no level of cover that's inappropriate as long as a client understands and agrees to it. Yeah. And I think it it really boils down, like mine's somewhat of a checklist type thing. Do you want to cover this? Yes, this is how much we're going to do. But I think it really boils down as well, um, just to break down maybe the, the major thing that I would take away from what should be in a needs analysis is having the right conversations with the right questions to determine whether the client um, feels like the value of what they're insuring is important to them. Because, you know, we've we've covered off, you know, here's all your overall circumstances, here's Mm. what my calculator might pump out or here's what, my table would assess as a total figure. But, um, yeah, I think breaking it down to having meaningful conversations with clients to ask those kind of questions too and correlating that back to the needs analysis. Yeah, is it the core of what we have to do anyway, right, is is yeah, linking back it. your goals. It's not just about here's the numbers, saying here's why we're doing it and making it something that's, if this is even a word, reviewable. Yeah, 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 and that's—I mean—that's it. That's it. The, the other thing that I didn't touch on too much, but in our fact find, we ask specific question that if they say yes, it circles back to we need to cover this. So, yeah. a single client who doesn't have any debt, we ask them, "Hey, if you were to be totally disabled, do you want some money to buy a house?" Yeah, 
if that's important to them, then okay, great. We will increase the level of cover to factor in that future purchase. That's not in our default house view because, I mean, because it kind of boosts up the level of cover and that the, the client will be technically in a better financial position than they were prior. Yep. Um, and so that's not the, the reason for insurance. But we ask that question, is that important to you? If it is important to them, then that increases the level of cover. And we and we touch on that in the meeting. Hey, you said this. This is why we've done this. It's not necessarily our, our default position. Um, just to reiterate, is that is that really important to you? And for that extra cost, is that important? Yeah, yeah. I like that you've got that as a a question. And I think that is a balance of finding what are the questions we should be asking versus not overwhelming them with a stupid number of questions too oh so. we do i i apologize every new client i say look i'm going to get you to fill in a form there's probably a million questions in there apologies but we need it yeah. <laughs> so i just apologize up front hey it's really annoying but we've got to do it so yeah. um, but it helps to have those meaningful conversations that's why i brought that back as the key thing is mm. if you're not having those meaningful conversations and identifying the key metrics um then like you said you you can't justify it based on here's how much i think you should have which is where it hurts me every time I see a policy that just says 500 grand. Yeah. Like that's, you haven't really quantified that. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a great chat. We've, we've gone well over time. So thank you for allowing me to take a lot of your time. Um, I've got two questions for you. Um, when do you get time to do your emails? <laughs> uh, I kind of do them sporadically throughout focused tasks that I try and work on. Yeah, it, it's not a particular structure, but I purposely turned off notifications for emails to pop up in the corner of my screen because it's too distracting and you'll never get anything done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what's one interesting hobby that you have? Oh, man. Um, dude, ever since I've had kids and now I've got a dog and stuff, my hobby life is like drastically reduced. I, um, I'm probably going to be throwing that word geek out. I've started playing computer games again sometimes. My wife's like a big reader. So we've yeah. got like a little reading chair in my office for her. And when the kids are in bed and if we're not binging on something or whatever, then... She's reading and you're, you're gaming. Yeah. What's, uh, what game are you playing? Uh, at the moment, I'm playing Rocket League. All right. Just any like Rocket it. League players hit ground up and, and have a... Have a, a a spin is it? I don't know. What do you? Because <laughs> it's, it's driving, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's like car, it's car yeah. soccer. Have, yeah, but yeah, I know, like, wanna, if you want to have a hit or a spin, and Sean Sean Clements, I know he's into Battlefield. So if yeah. there's any other gamers who want to play those kind of games, then hit you up. You know the right people. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, jumping on. I really appreciate it. So if people want to get in touch and ask any questions about your needs analysis or about your 17-step meeting process, <laughs> um, how do they reach you? Uh, well, the easiest way is just jump on the website and hit contact. It's just inspiredfp.com.au. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way to just reach me on Messenger or email me or whatever. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.